According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We're going to be in uh, John this morning, but before we get there, let's start with Matthew 26. Episode 25, Betrayal, Arrest, and Desertion. It's covered in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see the passages on the board, Matthew 26, verses 47 to 56, Mark 14, verses 43 to 52, Luke 22, 47 through 53, and then John 18, 2 through 12. They're all, at least the synoptics are fairly similar. Uh, John does give some unique information as you would expect, and pretty common to his gospel record. But picking up uh, this morning in Matthew 26, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. And immediately Jesus went to Jesus and said, or Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. I think it might be better to rephrase this as a question. Friend, what have you come for? It's consistent with the account in Mark and Luke where he's asking a question. And uh, uh, it's consistent with a pattern that we have throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament alike, where the Lord is graciously allowing confession opportunities. Uh, even to the very last moment. And so, different aspects on that that we've, uh, we've looked at. Then they came, laid hands on Jesus, and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew out a sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And uh, the Gospel of John rats him out. This is Peter with the sword. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. And that's so abused and misused in a lot of different contexts. I'm hoping that we'll take the time to put it in its proper context and understand uh, what is being said there as a prophecy related to the attempts to resist the Roman authority that uh, ends up with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, it is not a verse that demands that we become a bunch of pacifists and allow ourselves to be uh, abused and so forth. In any event, we'll, uh, we'll address that here shortly. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We are thankful for Your faithfulness in all things, Father, for the, the uh, living and abiding Word of God. It's not simply words that were written down thousands of years ago. But, Father, they are alive today, and they come to life in our soul. I thank you that we're able to uh, study to show ourselves approved. I'm thankful that we can allow the Word of Christ to richly dwell within each one of us, day by day, moment by moment. Father, I pray at this time, as, uh, as we turn our focus to this study, that you would lay aside distractions, Father, that you would hedge us about with protection, that you would fix our eyes firmly upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For it is in his name that we ask these things. Amen. All right, we have covered three points of study in the outline. 
Under point one, I simply give you the seven-point sequence. This is how we've harmonized the four gospel records. This is, uh, whoops, let me give you G. Um, the seven events there pertaining to this episode, the arrival with the armed soldiers. All four gospels mention that, although only the gospel of John specifically highlights the Roman cohort, the spera, that uh, is the Roman cohort, one-tenth of a Roman legion. Uh, secondly, where we are this morning, the kiss, Judas's kiss and the private word from Jesus. Yeah, uh, it's recorded not in John, but in the synoptics. Anytime you see the word synoptics, that's reference to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay? The three Gospels that are largely interchangeable, largely synonymous. And uh, the term synoptic refers to those three Gospel accounts. Then uh, where we get to here very quickly, the triple I am. I call it a triple I am because it shows up three times in the text. Uh, some people call it the double I am because it really only happens twice. Um, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but uh, there it is, the triple I am. Only in the Gospel of John and significant because it is a huge part of John's Gospel. It's a part of the I am messages that he delivers, the Good Shepherd, the, the, um, all the I am messages, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, all the I am messages throughout the Gospel of John. And uh, to have the I am statement right here at the moment of his arrest, I find to be uh, extraordinary, and we want to evaluate the um, the purpose that our Lord had in making such a statement before uh, the people that He did. Uh, under point D, we look at Peter's sword and uh, the healing of the ear after he uh, chops off that ear. Under point E, the message of irony, the message of irony, and this is uh, not in John, but it is in the, all three of the Synoptic Gospels, and this is the one where he says, "Look at this! What are you doing?" He says. Um, I was teaching every day in the temple. Have you come to? Uh, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Again, it's a question. That's why I think the statement to Judas was a question. That this is consistent with his uh, his attitude, his approach on this night with these people. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would a robber? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and the Lord's asking this rhetorical question, like, isn't this an amazing thing? You guys have surrounded me like I'm some kind of a bandit, right? And he says, every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Every day. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> you know, it's like he's the, he's the commentator for his own arrest. And, and he's, he's speaking these things out loud so that his disciples will listen, so that the, the, uh, the arresting officials will listen. The last time when they sent these officers to arrest him, they stopped and they listened and they didn't arrest him. Now they're listening and they will arrest him. Okay? So we're going to deal with it. I think that the, the message of irony has some meat to it that we, wanna, we want to uh, not lose sight of. Um, particularly where it highlights the fact that this hour is yours. And we'll talk about what happens when God and His permissive will. What happens when God and His plan allows the terrible things to take place. Because what are they going to produce in the long run? What will they work together? How will they work together for the good? You understand. All right, then point F, the fleeing disciples. It's only explicitly stated in Matthew and Mark, M&M. Those are the M&M Gospels. Um, but I think it's also implied in the Gospel of Luke. It's just not expressly stated. Uh, and then the naked young man, uh, unique to the Gospel of Mark. Not a lot to say about it beyond what I've already said about it. I think it was Mark himself. Um, but uh, the scripture doesn't say why he was there or where he went or 
never appears again anywhere in the gospel record. All right. So in point two, last week we took the time to break down uh, an examination of these soldiers. Uh, the synoptics simply call them a crowd, but John specifies that they are a cohort, a Roman cohort of Spera, as well as officers, the Huperetai, from the, uh, from the temple. Which brings us to point three, Judas, where we ran out of time. Judas, he used a kiss to identify the target. Used a kiss to identify the target. And now all the symbols that he could have used, of all the uh, symbols that he could have used, and all that, and you think, why that? Well, <laughs> why not? <laughs> and when you think about the fulfillment of the typology, when you go back and you take a look, I hope today we'll have the time to go back and look at Ahithophel and look at David and his betrayal there and some of the shadows of this betrayal, some of the verses that are cited, um, some of the Psalms where David in his anguish wrote about the betrayal is pretty interesting. And you had to wonder if, you know, did it not bother Satan at all? <laughs> you know, did it bother him at all when the Pharisees count out 30 pieces of silver? Didn't that hit anybody that, hey, hello, this is Zechariah. <laughs> We're fulfilling scripture here. Uh, or let's, get, let's use this to buy the potter's field. Did, that, did they stop to think that here they are fulfilling Scripture? Okay? And it's, it's extraordinary because you know, the, the mockers and the skeptics today will say, well, Jesus and the disciples, they were, they were intentionally trying to fulfill as much Scripture as they could so that they could make a claim that He was the Messiah. And they were deliberately purporting this fraud, acting out all these things, because they, they read their Bibles, they knew, they knew, and, and so they were just deliberately trying to fake all this stuff to say that they were fulfilling Scripture. Okay, well, two problems. You know, how do you fake a virgin? How do you fake a, <laughs> you know, that pretty precocious uh, infant in the womb to, to choose Bethlehem in the manger for his birthplace? But beyond that, even if I grant that, okay, Jesus' disciples were a bunch of phonies and frauds that were trying to fulfill this, well, what about his enemies? Were they in on the act too? <laughs> were the Pharisees also joining in perpetuating this fraud and working hard to count out 30 pieces of silver because they were part of the whole, the whole thing? No, not at all. There's a much simpler explanation, and that is God has a plan, and he unfolds his plan, he promises his plan, and then he makes it happen. And he tells you after it's happened, and this is what he was talking about. And so we see it there. All right. Well, the kiss. Um, it, it's interesting that the verb is phileo. And in Matthew 26, 48, uh, we have phileo followed by kata phileo in verse 49. And this was the question we were just discussing is the vocabulary here. Uh, it says in verse 48, He who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I phileo, he is the one, sees him. Whomever I phileo, and the verb there is phileo. Now, this is interesting, all right, because we're accustomed to phileo for a lot of other reasons. We're accustomed to, phileo has 25 New Testament reasons, and 22 times, 22 of those 25 times, it's translated love, all right? And there's only three times that it's not translated love, and they're right here. And I think they're not translated love because in context, the very next verse uses either katafileo or philema. Either uses the compound that means to kiss or it uses the noun for a kiss. And so because of that, in context, I think the translators uh, render the, the, the verb phileo as kiss in these verses. 
But we could say, he who is betraying him gave them a sign, saying, whomever I love, he is the one sees him. Whomever I phileo, he is the one sees him. All right? And uh, so it is interesting. It's um, definitely it's a secondary meaning. It's, a, it's by extension. It's the understanding that you don't just kiss anybody, uh, but you do, uh, you know, you do kiss those that you love as an application there. So what was asked was, do I think on the basis of this then that Judas actually truly loved Jesus? Do I think that? Okay, well, no. Um, I don't know that we can go that far. I don't know that we can say that. You know, I, I think there's a, there's a fallacy whereby you take a statement and then you try to affirm the opposite of the statement. You can't always do that. In fact, rarely can you do that. Uh, where you say, well, if you kiss those that you love, that's true. Does that mean that you love everybody you kiss? Or is it possible to kiss somebody you don't love? And as in the case here, when you kiss somebody that you're betraying, you're kissing somebody and acting as if you love them when the, when the reality is as you're betraying them. The reality is as you're selling them out. And so we see that. All right. So this is what we have. We have phileo followed by kata phileo. K-A-T-A-P-H-I-L-E-O. Kata phileo, number 2705. Phileo is 5368. And as I say, we're, we're very accustomed to phileo. It's, it's common, not as common as agapao. But many of the word studies we've done in the past have related agape love with philos love. We have uh, studied that on many, many occasions, and I'm sure we will again. Um, but this is just uh, kind of a unique place. The only three times where phileo is not translated to love, it's translated to kiss. All right. And so we see it there. It's verses 48 and 49. In uh, Mark 14, it's verses 44 and 45. You'll see the same thing there. Uh, he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I phileo, whomever I love, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, Jesus immediately went to him, or Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and Kataphileo kissed him and kissed him. So there's phileo followed by kataphileo. In Luke, you've got verses 47 and 48. Luke 22, it's verses 47 and 48, where it's phileo and philema. Phileo and philema. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to phileo him. He approached Jesus to love him. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a philema, with a kiss? And that's the noun, the cognate noun related to this verb. And so the noun philema, P-H-I-L-E-M-A, philema, number 5370, has seven New Testament uses. The verb katafileo has six New Testament uses. We've now seen three out of the six. I'm sorry, two out of the six. And we've seen one out of the seven uh, uses of the noun. Interestingly enough, most places where they're found are in the exhortations for Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss, to greet one another with a holy philema, as it were, and uh, aspects there. All right, so here it is. Is it real? No, I don't think for a minute that he phileoed Jesus. Um, 
I don't think he had the capacity to phileo Jesus. When it comes right down to it, can a believer have phileo love with an unbeliever? Yes, but not in the things of the Lord. <laughs> okay? What philos means, what phileo love means, is that we have rapport based on something in common. And when believers have the Lord in common, you can have both agape and phileo love with one another, for one another. Uh, but you can have phileo love with an unbeliever. But it just has to be over other things in common, not the Lord, not the Word of God. Okay? And all earthly, all temporal life issues and aspects like that. All right. Secondly, now, point B, Jesus called Judas friend. Not the normal word for friend, though. Not the philos friend. Called him a heteros friend, a comrade, a companion. What today we might say um, an associate. Okay, the difference between your friends and your associates. Jesus called Judas friend and asked him what he had come for. And the term here is heteros. H-E-T-A-I-R-O-S. And that's, I find that significant. It's not philos. He doesn't call him the same. That, you know, Abraham was called the friend of God. That's not what we have here. Okay? It's not what we have here. He's not called the philos. He's called the heteros. All right. H-E-T-A-I-R-O-S. Number 2083 is the Strong's Concordance number. There are four legitimate New Testament uses. There are some... Variant uses as well that show up in a handful of manuscripts. There's a variant reading in Matthew 11:16 that has this term, but it does appear legitimately in Matthew 20 and verse 13, Matthew 22 and verse 12. We can spot those. Matthew 20. And so, how would you have a friendship if it's not based on rapport? If it's not based on something you have in common? You might have something just based on um, an endeavor, or might be based on a, a, a sphere, a venue, something that you just, if you're coworkers, for example, you know you don't have a fellowship, you don't have a friendship, but you know who they are. You spend a lot of time with them. Maybe you do things together. I think comrade or companion is a good term. Companion, especially, is loaded um, in the in the feminine gender of this term. Okay, in the feminine gender of this term, the the, het, the hetera, uh, the feminine uh, companion, was the euphemism for your mistress. Okay, for a man's companion, a man's, you know, uh, not his wife, the other woman, and that's what heteros is, other, right? Hetero, other, homo, same, hetero, other, and so the other. If you make it a feminine noun, a hetere, or a plural heterai, the heterai were the professional prostitutes. They were the, the, the companions, the escorts, the whatever. Why do we have so many words for this? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? We've got probably a dozen words or more for prostitutes. And, and some are more vulgar and some are more, um, yeah, genteel, diplomatic. Right. So if you're if you're uh, rich and you can have the money to kind of cover over your immorality, then you have a you have a companion, see, as it were, you have a mistress. But if you're vulgar and cheap, then you you know, 
<laughs> of a hooker or whatever, as far as that goes. Okay. The key here is uh, for the for the heteri or for the friend that he's calling Judas. I think the friend the, the the masculine gender now is entirely different than the feminine gender. The masculine gender, friend, companion, uh, it, it, it's not code, you know, and it's 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 true. <laughs> he's his companion. He's his he's his uh, comrade. Um, so not not a friend on an intimate basis. We would say an associate, an acquaintance. I know who they are. They know who I are. We're on speaking terms. We're not we're not enemies, okay? But we're not intimates. I'm sorry. One of the twelve, absolutely. One of the twelve, but not one of the three. Not Peter, James, or John. Not somebody that lies in his bosom. Not somebody that he brings into the garden for prayer. Okay. I would call the three. I would call them philo. I call them friends, intimate friends, but not uh, not Judas. He's a heteros. All right. So the uses of this uh, include Matthew 20 and verse 13. I'll just grab all Matthew uses on this. Uh, Matthew 20 and verse 13. Before we get to 22.12. Um, and this is where he hires these laborers. And, and then gets some other laborers, some other laborers, some other laborers. And then uh, he pays them all in reverse order. And uh, then they grumble. Who grumbles? The first crowd. The one that worked all day long and got paid just the same as the last group. And uh, they start grumbling at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Okay, so were they really friends? This, this paymaster or this landowner? No, they weren't friends in any respect. But... It's a nicer way than saying, quit grumbling, you jerk. <laughs> right? It's it's a it's an address of friend. Um, interesting. I mean, even in the one of the recent presidential debates, I heard that term that was employed. Uh, the President Obama employed it with respect to Mitt Romney. Romney called him his friend. You know. Are they really friends? Or do they use the expression for whatever purpose? All right. So, uh, it's just an associate, somebody I know. I want to stay on friendly terms. Um, it's a, it's an address. All right. Next chapter, chapter or chapter twenty-two and verse twelve. The king came in to look over the dinner guests. Here's another story, and um, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes, and he said to him, "Friend." <laughs> okay, so in both of these instances, we realize that there's no rapport, there's no love. In fact, you have a man who's in the right, who I think is being very gracious towards a man that's in the wrong, towards a man that ought to be rebuked, like the grumbling laborer or the the poorly dressed wedding uh, uh, visitor. In both cases, you have a man in authority that's being gracious, and you have somebody out of place or out of line who uh, who could be called, a, you know, something a lot worse. And he says, "Friend, 
So, uh, you know, is this the, the uh, attitude that Jesus has? And then when Judas comes up to kiss him and he says, friend, I think it's consistent, all right? The other uses that we see here. How did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. Uh, so much for your friend. <laughs> okay. Um, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right. And then the one that's a, a manuscript question is Matthew 11 and verse 16. Matthew 11 and verse 16. You will find it in the lexicons and some commentaries as uh, abbreviated VL. VL. Uh, it's a Latin expression, varia lecto, as a, as a variant reading. Okay. And it shows up in Matthew 11 and verse 16. What uh, shall I compare this generation is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to others, companions, friends, other children, you know, fellow urchins, <laughs> ragamuffins. And, 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 and they, they, they're just thugs in the street and they think they, they run the town. And they th- say, hey, you know, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Okay. You go to some cultures where you have street urchins that are professional beggars and they, uh, they're, the, they're lifelong professional orphans. Whether or not they have parents is irrelevant. They act like they're orphans and they beg and they climb on your window and they, they uh, wipe off your windshield and they expect you're going to give them something because they cleaned your windshield. And uh, aspects there. Well, here's a crowd. And they, uh, they uh, I don't know if they're busking or they're, they're earning fees for their musical uh, little ditties. Um, but the point being is that Jesus isn't dancing to their tune, and neither would John the Baptist, and uh, in neither of their uh, particular ministries. All right, so Ju- Jesus calls Judas friend, but I don't say that we want to read a whole lot into that based upon the other uses of heteros, and based upon the recognition that this term does not communicate a tremendous amount of intimacy or any intimacy at all when it comes down to it. All right, now, when I do consider this, let me get back to Matthew here. Seem to have some traffic in the parking lot, but they just, they just left. <laughs> Coming and going. And All right. So, um, back to uh, the arrest. Friend, do what you have come for. Now, we have passages in the Old Testament that speak about the betrayal by uh, David and Ahithophel and the the issues there. Now, there was fellowship. There was friendship. There was intimacy. And so let's be cautious and not try to take the the passages in the Old Testament that are prophetic and try to read too much from that into the New Testament. Okay? Does this make sense? Because those passages were not limited to the prophecies. Those passages were also grounded in the history. There was a real event of, of a real betrayal, of a real treason. Okay? And, and in Psalms, if you're looking at, well, let's look at one of them, either, either 55 or 41, we can look at a number of these. Um, Psalm 55, maybe. Let's 
and I'm just pulling these off the top of my head here. Um, I know Psalm 55, Psalm 41, there's a couple of these. But when you look at Psalm 55, 12, it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. You know, when, when you're attacked by an unbeliever, when you're attacked by an enemy, when someone who hates your guts attacks you, all right, fine. <laughs> That's one thing. And you may not like it, but at least it's not a shock. It's not a surprise. And what do you expect? But when it's your friend, when it's somebody who's supposed to love you, when it's somebody who used to love you, when it's somebody that you still love, and, you, and, and this betrayal has opened your eyes to the fact that they don't love you anymore, at least not like you love them. Oh, man, it's a whole other universe at that point, isn't it? And this is what David experienced with respect to Ahithophel. And to be fair, this is what Ahithophel experienced before this event, okay? Because when David committed adultery with Ahithophel's granddaughter Bathsheba and murdered Ahithophel's son-in-law Uriah, don't you think Ahithophel felt betrayed at that point? His king, his brother, his, his friend was an adulterer and a murderer and a traitor and a, and, and a course. So, uh, again, Psalm 55, 12, It is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, uh, one, uh, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together, Walked in the house of God in the throng. And often we read this and we, we say, you know, this is utter betrayal on Ahithophel's part that now he and David can't have fellowship together anymore. But really, who broke that fellowship first? Who is responsible for the destruction of this intimacy? Yeah, David wasn't walking in the uh, sweet fellowship in the house of the throng when he was up there on the roof scoping out the the women that he wanted to target and things there. Uh, Psalm 41. Another uh, reference here. Hmm. Um, really? Man, almost the entire psalm. But when you notice... Um, my enemies, verse 5, my enemies. Well, let's, let's uh, look at the entire thing. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive, and he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In, illness, in his illness you restore him to health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. And this is what's beautiful about David's repentance and about his restoration to fellowship. When Nathan rebuked him and when he just confessed and said, I have sinned against the Lord. As soon as Nathan said, you are the man, and David just humbled himself and knew he was caught and said, I have sinned against the Lord. At that moment, he was that close to the sin and the death. And at that moment, he was spared. At that moment, he was forgiven. And so now he knows he's healed. He knows he's on the path to recovery. But he also knows... It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not just a wipe everything off. Everything's now undone. You can't undo what's been done. And there are going to be temporal consequences. 
My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. So in my presence, he's still a faithful counselor. But when he leaves my presence, he's out there whispering. He's out there plotting my destruction. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying a wicked thing is poured out upon him. In other words, using his divine discipline as proof that God is against him, so we can go ahead, we're justified now in being against him too. (laughs) Okay? That when he lies down, he will not rise up again. You see how this comes together? And what's remarkable is, even when Saul was under divine discipline, David never felt that that was his justification to be the tool to, to lift his hand against Saul, to, to murder him in the cave. Even though he knew Saul was under God's hand of discipline. He said, no, he's in the Lord's hand. I'm not going to lift my hand against the Lord's anointing. These guys say, oh, he's under the Lord's discipline. Let's pile on. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's do him in. Let's kick him when he's down. That he will not rise up again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Okay, now, yes, this is prophetic. Yes, this is looking ahead to the upper room. This is looking ahead to Judas. This is looking ahead to the betrayal by Jesus and Judas. But don't, don't go so far that you take every little detail out of here and think that somehow it applies there, because it does not. We cannot, it's not fair to say that Judas was a familiar friend, an intimate friend, a companion. They had sweet fellowship in the house of the Lord together, anything of that nature. Okay? I think those are the aspects you have to leave to the Old Testament history rather than the New Testament prophecy. All right, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. So in other words, what does he do? He just leaves himself in the hands of the Lord. Leaves himself in the hands of the Lord. And I think we can appreciate that. All right. Point four then. Let's look at the triple I am. For this we turn to the Gospel of John. John 18. We'll see all the I am's in the Gospel of John. Now, some people call this a double I am because really the first two, the second one is referring back to the first one. Um, and he actually only states it twice. The first time he knocks him down. The second time uh, he gives uh, the disciples time to flee. All right. The triple I am. So Judas, then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. Okay. And this is interesting because, (laughs) you know, this is an instance of he who seeks shall find. And they sought him. And they found him. And they didn't get saved. (laughs) All right. They were seeking for the wrong reasons. All right. And he said to them, I am. I am. I'm reading in John chapter 18. Verses uh, 3, 4, and 5. I'm sorry. Thank you. John 18, verses 3, 4, and 5. 
So they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. Or I am he, if you want to translate it that way. He said to them, Ego Amy, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am. When he said to them, Ego Amy, they drew back and fell to the ground. So really the I am in verse 6 is referencing the I am that he said in verse 5. That's why some people don't you know, call this the double I am instead of the triple I am. Alright, they fall to the ground. It's kind of rough. If you're getting arrested and your arresting officers fall down, <laughs> alright, you got to get them back up again. So therefore, he again asked them, and we assume it's after they recover from their stunned circumstance and get back up. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. I said that, ego amy. So if you seek me, let these go their way. If you seek me, let these go their way. And what he does here, the second time with the I am statement, is giving the disciples opportunity to flee. Jesus answered, I told you that I am, uh, I'm sorry, verse 9, to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. This was part of his prayer in John 17. Judas Iscariot was the only one, the son of perdition, was the only one that did not belong to the Father, did not belong to him, was not a believer. All right, so uh, this is to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Now, it's remarkable. Every step of the way, they're still in denial. Peter's still in denial. I will never desert you. Jesus said the rooster's going to crow three times. Nope, not me, not me. Okay? And even here, when they have a chance to run, they're not going to run. Instead, he's going to grab a sword and try to fight. They were told they're not going to run, and Jesus said... You're violating Scripture. Remember that? He said, you're violating Scripture. How then are the Scriptures to be fulfilled? The the prophet Zechariah said, I'm going to be left alone. The prophet Zechariah said that all the sheep are going to be scattered. And he tells them this in the upper room. And they don't like it. (laughs) They don't like what the Old Testament says. They don't like what Jesus says. And all he's doing is teaching the Bible. And here too... The I am, if it terrifies these unbelievers, it ought to encourage the believers. That all right, here's the arrest. He told them here was the arrest. This is their chance to get out of here. And instead they don't. <laughs> we have the, uh, the attempt to rescue Jesus. All right. Um, That statement in verse 9 goes back to the prayer in chapter 17. Uh, We can look at that at some point, but I don't think we necessarily need to. Other than to answer the question, I guess there was some doubt whether Judas maybe was a believer, but no. Um, I think it's pretty clear from chapter 17 that he's not a believer. Let's just look at this I am statement, the ego amy under subpoint A. The ego amy I am statements are quite common in the Gospel of John. In fact, it it really sets John apart from the Synoptic Gospels. The I am statements are quite common in the Gospel of John. And not just the seven famous uh, sermons, you know, I am the Good Shepherd. Uh, There's seven of those very famous I am sermons. But there are other I am declarations that are separate from, from discourses, like this one here. And I think they're 
each of those is significant as well. So uh, chapter 4 and verse 26. Chapter 6 and verses 20, 35, 41, 48, 51. Five verses in chapter 6 that all have the I am statements. I am the bread. Okay, the bread of heaven. In John chapter 8, verse 12, verse 18, verse 24, verse 28, verse 58. Five more there in chapter 8. And these I am statements, statements of deity, where they couldn't understand how, why he kept talking about Abraham as if he knew him. Because he did know him. He does know him. He did when Abraham was alive and he still knows him. Before Abraham was born, I am. And they hated him for his blasphemy. Okay? Because in their mind, unless you're God, you can't, you can't make the I am declaration. John chapter 9 and verse 9. John chapter 10. Verse 7 and 9 is the door. Verses 11 and 14 is the good shepherd. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 13.19, John 14.6, John 15.1 and 5. That one's awesome because that one has an I am and it adds to the I am a my father is and you are. Unique in all the I am statements. Is John 15. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. And then the I am's here in verse 5 and verse 6 and verse 8. So I call it the triple I am. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 8. All right. Um, Are you familiar with these? I just mentioned most of them. Let's take a look. It won't take too long. John chapter 4. Because some of these are not as familiar. They're not in the midst of these these, um, great sermons. But with the woman, with the Samaritan woman at the well, who uh, has questions, as soon as she finds out he's a prophet, she's not offended because he's exposed her her uh, promiscuity. She's actually relieved that now, finally, for the first time in her life, here's somebody that can answer something she's been wanting to know for a long, long time. And uh, and I, I appreciate that. So the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, I am. I am. In the statement of deity, the statement of I am, that we'll go back and we'll see it in, the, in Exodus chapter 3, the, um, the declaration, he is what? He is the Christ? Yes. But he is also the Lord. He is, I am. She is face to face with her Creator. Alright, that's uh, John 4.26. As I mentioned, John 6, bread of heaven. And some of these um, we don't think of as I am statements because they're not in sermons. But when he's walking across the water, they're terrified. How does he encourage them? I am is how he encourages them. And so uh, the sea began to be stirred because of a strong wind. I'm reading from John 6 and verse 19. 
Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, I am, do not be afraid. Or it is I, do not be afraid. I am, do not be afraid. So whichever way you want to take that, I think it's perfectly acceptable to take it as I am. The statement of the same encouragement that was to encourage Israel that Moses was going to lead them out of Egypt is the same encouragement that's going to encourage these disciples that they're not going to die in this storm because the I am just got in the boat with them. (laughs) Right? All right. So they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. How about that? Just teleport to the shore. Uh, Still in chapter 6, verses 35. I am. And here's there's an object. See, there's a difference when you have an object like we have here. I am the bread of life. And these are the sermons and we, we talk about these different messages. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Coming to Christ is equated with believing in Christ. In uh, the, the parallelism there, verse 35. Parallel with eating. Parallel with drinking. The metaphors for believing. And we see it there. Um, so that's verse 35. We also have verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 48. I am the bread of life. You know, they were, they, this whole crowd, they wanted him to do this miracle again. He fed the 5,000 the night before. They said, do it again. Do it again. We want to make you our king. Do it again. Feed us. And they totally missed the point. <laughs> okay? You know, you, you see the miracle. You're supposed to recognize here's somebody sent from God. Listen to him. Do what he says. It's not about just eating food every morning. I like what he says in verse 49. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. <laughs> okay? Believe in me. Believe in me. Then verse 48 and verse 51. Uh, 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Trusting in Christ, trusting in Him for eternal life on the basis of what He lays down, on the basis of what He provides. Chapter 8. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. You should be. We've taught every single one of these up till now, right? This is the last one we come to in the Gospel of John is the one we're looking at today in chapter 18. John chapter 8, verse 12, 18, 24, 28, 58. Verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay? I just encourage you. Is this, is this about salvation? Do you remember? Eating bread was about salvation. What about the light of the world? Is this about salvation? Are all these identical or do they build on each other? Do we actually have a progression of doctrine? We have a progression of doctrine. We have to eat Christ to get saved and then we have to follow Christ walking in His light. Verse 18, I am He who testifies about Myself and the Father who sent Me testifies about Me. That's an I am statement. That is an I am statement. The fact that we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all testifying in agreement doesn't invalidate their witness. 
reinforces their witness. Verse um, 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am. Trusting in Christ. God in the flesh. God came to do what we could not do. And they're still in their sins. Uh, Verse 28. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And the last one in this chapter is in verse 58. Isn't it interesting how after the the cross was put into effect, after the crucifixion took place, then realization hit a whole lot of folks, including the Roman centurion, Surely this was the Son of God, including many of the Jewish religious leaders. Cut to the quick when Peter starts preaching to them on Pentecost. You crucified the Christ. They come to this understanding, I am. We put the Christ to death. Even the fallen angels, the rulers of this age, if they would have understood the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the the Lord of glory. Not until after they accomplished their nefarious... uh, plot, did they start to realize, wait a minute, this is a mistake. (laughs) I think Satan realized it as soon as he was hung up there. Then started taunting him and teasing him and saying, come down, come down. (laughs) If God loves you, he'll, he'll deliver you. Get down off that cross. I think at that point, Satan knew that he had made his mistake. All right. Where am I? 858, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. This is probably the most blatant of all the ones. And they knew it. They picked up stones to throw at him. You know, you understand, I am. This is sacred. This is holy. This is language they don't use. They, they are so, the Jewish people are so reverent with respect to the, the name. They don't even pronounce Yahweh. They don't pronounce, they, they substitute Adonai in his place. They, they, um, they, they, it's the ineffable name of God. They will not allow themselves to verbalize it. And so his statements of I am are, are blasphemy as far as they're concerned. For, for anybody other than God to say these things, it would be blasphemy. I can't make an I am statement. No human being can. Not the absolute I am of Yahweh. But Jesus can. He's entitled to and he does. All right. Over to chapter 9 and verse 9. Um, this is kind of interesting. In all the arguments about him. And actually I should take that one off. I meant to take that one off. That's not Jesus. It's the man born blind. He has his own I am statement. They were all saying, oh, this isn't him. This is not him. Nobody's like him. And he kept saying, I am or I am the one. I should take that one off. That's not a Jesus I am statement. Now, chapter 10, we've got I am statements. Verse 7, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14. I am the door. I am the door. Now, is this about getting saved? No, you've got a progression of doctrine. If this is about getting saved, if, in other words, if it's the same doctrine being taught with I am the bread, I am the light, I am the door, we've got a lot of problem because this is a door with an in and out. Okay? And you can't have an in-and-out door if you're talking about salvation. 
No, there's a progression of doctrine being revealed here. This is about going in for rest and protection and going out for food. Um, being led by the shepherd during the day and being brought back in to sleep into the sheepfold at night. You will go in and out and find pasture. You don't find pasture in your, in your sleeping pen. You, uh, you find pasture out in the, the good pastures and he leads you there. Alright, so that's verse 7, that's verse 9, verse 11 and 14 is, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. John 11:25. Jesus tried to encourage Martha that her brother would rise again. And she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who comes into the world. Great testimony there. 1319. In the upper room, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Even the disciples. In fact, we're told we're going to find out that it's not until they're standing in the empty tomb when it finally sinks in for Peter and John. Oh, this is what he was talking about. (laughs) Okay. Some people are a little slow. And thankfully, God is very patient. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 15, as I said. Now, we've had all of these I am statements, right? Bread, door, good shepherd, resurrection and the life, way, the truth, and the life. We've had all these I am statements. Now we have an I am statement that includes I am, my Father is, and you are. And it really serves as an amazing capstone of all of these I am sermons. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. All right. So the ego, Amy, I am statements are quite common in the Gospel of John, featured here at his arrest. The significance of this name goes back to the call of Moses and his mission to redeem Israel from their bondage in Egypt. Point B. The significance of this name goes back to the call of Moses and his mission to redeem Israel from their bondage in Egypt. Exodus 3, verses 13 through 15. And this is why it's so special for this name to be featured on this night. Because Jesus is on the verge of redeeming all of us. The significance of this name goes back to the call of Moses and his mission to redeem Israel from their bondage in Egypt. You know, Moses was faithful. Well, what have we been learning on Sunday nights from Hebrews chapter 3? Moses was faithful as a servant. Jesus was faithful as a son. Moses is typology for Jesus. Moses is the shadow. Jesus is the substance. 
And so on this night in which uh, you know Moses is being called, before he goes back and stands before Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 3, he's, he's brought into intimate fellowship with the Lord and this name is explained to him. Exodus 3, verses 13 through 15. Now, they, they were exposed to Yahweh before. They knew Yahweh. Abraham knew the name Yahweh. Yahweh was featured throughout Genesis. Abraham knew, was familiar with the name Yahweh. Isaac, Jacob, they were all familiar with the name Yahweh. But the significance of what, what does Yahweh mean? Why is He called Yahweh? That was reserved until this time. It was not taught in Genesis. It's reserved for Exodus. Okay? Because Yahweh is not only a creator, Yahweh is a redeemer. And at the point where Israel is redeemed is the point where Yahweh can be revealed and the significance of that name can be revealed. Alright. So, Exodus chapter 3 is the burning bush. And the call of Moses and his uh, anointing or his being set apart to deliver Israel. And, um, of course, he's got a number of complaints along the way. Um, but verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. The Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Elohim of Israel. The Elohim of your fathers. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, I don't have, I'm running out of time, but why would they ask such a thing? Did Abraham ever ask such a thing? Did Isaac ever ask such a thing? Did Jacob ever ask such a thing? Jacob did ask such a thing. Why are you asking this since it is wonderful? Okay? And then uh, Jacob gets his new name, Israel. Well, now Israel is being brought out of Egypt. And they may ask, they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay? And this is not Yahweh, this is Eye, this is I am, which is the meaning behind Yahweh. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. So we're told that Yahweh is a memorial name for Eye. You see that? The Eye. You don't see that? Eye is I am in verse 14. Eye is I am. And Yahweh comes from Eye. Okay? Yahweh comes from Eye. Verse 14 leads to verse 15. And we don't have Eye ever again in the Old Testament. We don't have the I Am anywhere else in the Old Testament. But we have Yahweh everywhere. <laughs> okay? But we're told that the significance of the Yahweh is the Eye of verse 14. Sorry to spring that with three minutes left in class. <laughs> That's actually a longer subject matter. We've taught this before. We taught this in the life of Jacob. We taught this in the life of Jacob. We taught this uh, in different occasions. We need to review it again. But it's a memorial name. It's a memorial name. Like Passover is a memorial feast. Yahweh is a memorial name. And every time they 
view themselves as being redeemed by Yahweh, the, remem- the remembrance goes back to this, goes back to the I Am who delivered them, the I Am who created them, the I Am who redeemed them. All right. Uh, we'll do some swashbuckling next week. Point five is Peter's sword. So we'll, uh, we'll see if it's possible for one Jewish fisherman to conquer the Roman Empire. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not. But if you think about it, Peter's got a better chance of single-handedly defeating Rome than you and I have a chance of earning our own salvation. You're going to try to accomplish something through human effort? <laughs> it's not going to happen. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. I thank you for the uh, faithfulness of our Savior in spite of the betrayal, knowing who his traitor is. Father, um, betrayal is hard enough when you don't know it's coming. But Jesus knew it was coming, and he knew that it was necessary. He knew it was part of your plan. And, um, and he told Judas, what you do, do quickly. Father, I thank you for his willingness to set aside his will and embrace yours, not my will, but thine be done. I pray that each one of us would be humble to learn this doctrine and make application when called upon. When your revealed will is at odds with our personal preferences, Father, I pray that this example would strike home and that we would be um, convicted that we have our own Gethsemane, we have our own uh, humility testing to say, your will be done. You must increase, we must decrease, Father. Teach us these lessons. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.